Listen, are you guys just a little bit curious about what's going on with this box behind me? You're like, who's in there? Everybody, come here. Come here for a second. Come here. Look at this. There might be a child in there. You could almost fit. Almost. Listen, we're going to find out in a couple moments what's here. But this is part of good storytelling is creating a little bit of curiosity and wonder about what is going on. Dan's going to be uh, doing some setup behind me while I talk. So you're going to have to multitask. Focus on what I'm saying even while you're watching what he is doing a little bit. Uh, We have Easter coming up in a few short weeks. And we have a little tradition around this church. This is a half-sheet flyer. And sometimes if you invite everyone... That means you actually invite exactly no one. So here's our call, church. Our call is to prayerfully do one good invite to Easter. Do you know there are people who will come to Easter and Christmas services that the rest of the year would never consider coming to church? So leverage that and be excited about what we just sang about and pray, God, send me out. Who is the one good invite I can make as a personal guest of mine to Easter services? Beyond Sunday morning, we have a Good Friday service, which will be bilingual. By the way, something exciting happening right now. You wonder, why is Pastor Dave late to church? It's because I'm teaching in a Spanish membership class happening right here uh, this morning. So we have some Spanish uh, uh, parts of our family becoming members this morning. Um, and Good Friday is going to be a bilingual service. It's open to the whole family. The details are all right here. Uh, but I would invite you right now, church, to begin praying and saying, God, who is it that you would have me come and do that for? Um, let me make a quick comment about one service or two. Many of you have been coming and saying, it's so great to have one service. It's been so good to pull the church together. We've really enjoyed the, the food and fellowship time in the outside. And to all of that, I say a hearty Amen. Okay, that means I agree. I have loved it as well. It has really brought our church together. Um, For the immediate future, uh, we are going to remain one service for a season except for Easter. So Easter, we will have 9 and 1045. All the details are here. We're going to go to two services on Easter and resume one service. And we are going to move to two services when needed. Here's the reality. Some of you have families that as they have grown, you no longer fit around Thanksgiving table. You had to move to two tables. Anyone ever been relegated to the kid table that wasn't a kid? Okay. Yeah. I choose the kid table. The kid table is like usually way more fun. Um, so, um, so here's the thing with that. As a family grows, of course we want one table. Of course we all want to be together all the time. Um, but, but it necessitates that we, that we grow and have a second table. And we don't really have a kid's service here where one's kid, one's not. We just have two services. So as we do that, um, be thinking of others as you, as you think through that with us um, and not just for yourself. That being said, um, I want to introduce my buddy Dan. Dan and I actually go way back um, to when Dan had hair and I had non-gray hair, okay? Um, <laughs> true story. Dan is a prospect panther, as am I. I we graduated from Prospect High School in Saratoga. Um, and here's what's interesting. This is the amazing thing about the body of Christ. Um, Dan and I were acquaintances. We kind of grew up going to school. We were friendly with each other, but we weren't friends. Um, my faith was, was nominal at best until halfway through my junior year when God said, like Saul on the road to Damascus, you're going to be mine. 
And he opened my eyes and my heart to him, and I said, whoa, that's incredible. And, uh, and because that happened late enough into high school, and I was still sort of timid with my faith and whatnot, I made a turning point. When I went to West Valley College, I decided I'm going to open my mouth about Jesus Christ and live that way, and it changed my life. Um, but Dan and I had a really good time a few, a few years ago reconnecting and realizing we were both Christians at the same time in the same very pagan high school. Um, and, uh, and here we are all these years later, and there's a connection because the spirit that resides in Dan resides in me. And everything I have talked with Dan about when it comes to sharing uh, the gospel, I've really resonated with. And at some point I said, man, Dan, we need to get you up here. Dan is a street evangelist. Dan goes out on the street, something that many of you go, whoa, I could never do that. I would never do that. Dan thought the same thing. I'm going to let him share his story and kind of how he does it. Um, But what I want to say about Dan is this. Dan um, has displayed that he is a servant of the church. Um, I'm actually a part of Dan's ministry in this one small part, but not small. Remember in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's writing Timothy, he says, first of all, pray. How important is prayer? It's first. It's first. So Dan texts me these things. Is that for me, Phil? For him. Come. Come do it. We have a little quick change. NASCAR. Go get your pack changed. I, th- I think we're not hearing it. Um, Test one, two. There we go. He just had it off. Good job. Yeah, I just had it off. Thanks, thanks Phil. <laughs> Quality control happening right here real time. Amen. Um, let me say this, though. Dan sends out texts of where he's going to be. And I was explaining to Eli on the way to church this morning. Dan goes out to Cupertino to, to our Arts and Wine Festival. Dan goes out to Monterey. Dan goes out to San Jose State. And do you know how I'm involved in Dan's ministry? I pray. So, Dan, I want you to know when I see those texts, I pray over that schedule. Um, and I am thrilled to have you here with us. Would you guys just welcome Dan? Thank you. Thank you so much, Pastor. Good morning, everyone. Such a privilege to be here this morning. Um, such a privilege to see what God does, making connections. You know, Prospect High School, also West Valley College. <laughs> and God was working in my life at the same time that He was working in Pastor Dave's life and, and brought me to Christ at almost the same time, even though, you know, didn't connect us until later. Um, but yes, as, as He said, I'm a street preacher. Um, And I want to qualify that because not all street preachers are created equal. There's some mean, angry ones that, you know, they're all pointing fingers at other people and saying, you're horrible, you're a sinner. We do have to talk about sin. We do have to talk about things like hell. But we want to talk most of all about the hope that is in Jesus Christ. And this is just a methodology that we use to share that. So Open Air Campaigners has been around for... Well, almost 130 years, started in the 1890s in uh, Australia, in Sydney, Australia, and now we're not only here in the United States, but we're around the world. We have uh, um, some guests staying with us this weekend, the Piranhos, who are here from, um, um, from South America, and they are, uh, I hope you'll have a chance to talk with them um, after the service as well and see what God is doing, not only here, but around the world and in places like Ecuador. So... One of the primary tools that we use for evangelism is the sketchboard here. And so I'm going to use it this morning as we're talking about a really important subject. See if you guys can guess what I'm writing up here. This word should be, first word should be one you're familiar with. Very good. 
close. Biblical. So I heard it's from someone back there. And this is what we use on the street to grab people's attention. It's one thing to just stand up there with the Bible and, and preach, and I've done that many times. But if we can do something to engage people and make it a two-way conversation, then people are much more likely to listen. And that's something that's very valuable. Biblical. What's this next word? Evangelism. evangelism. Very good. Biblical evangelism. Let's hope I spell it right. Oh, I actually did a VBS once where I spelled Jesus wrong. It was horrible. I did. <laughs> J-E-S-E-S, right? But that's okay. Biblical evangelism. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through um, a couple of key points that I think are important for us to remember when we share the gospel. Um, go through some, uh, some things about the approach, what to do and what not to do. I'm going to give a short gospel presentation, like I would on the street, and then we're going to pull that apart piece by piece and explain each piece. So first, a few What kind of points? Key points. A little silly, but that's okay. Kids really like these things. Two key points that we need to remember when we share the gospel. And all the things that I'm going to be sharing this morning are not just theory, but these are things that I've, been, I've practiced and learned through almost 15 years of street evangelism. Most of the, the illustrations I'm going to be using today, the Bible verses are going, that I'm going to be using today, I have specifically used on the street and in evangelism encounters hundreds of times. So I encourage you guys to listen carefully. Now, for those of you who are note takers, I'm going to be throwing a lot of information out there. Um, lest you feel worried that you're not getting everything down, my sermon notes, everything that I'm going through today will be up on the web, on my website. You can download the entire set of notes. Go to my website, which is yoursoulmatters.org, because it does, and go to the sermon notes and resources page, and you'll be able to do the complete sermon notes. And I also have a little half-page cheat sheet, something you can print out and stick in the back of your Bible with basic principles. So you can go through these things and practice them on your own to make sure that you remember the details, because there are some details that needed to be, need to be remembered. Sorry, mouth gets dry. So first, the gospel and salvation is a supernatural work of God. And because that is the case, evangelism is also a supernatural work of God's Spirit. It's not something that primarily we are doing, but something that God is doing through us. Salvation and evangelism is by the Spirit. So because of that, we need to make sure that we are spiritually prepared. Because it's not only a work of the Spirit, but it is really spiritual warfare. Anybody that's done any kind of street evangelism or even just tried to share the gospel with someone in your sphere of influence, someone in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school or something like that, it can be tough. And the enemy does not want you to open your mouth. 
So he will attack you. You need to make sure that you're prayed up. You need to make sure you know your word well. You need to have your armor on when you go out there. So it is by the Spirit. The second thing. Those who deny the truth of God do not primarily have intellectual issues. It's not an intellectual problem, belief in God. It is primarily a moral and spiritual problem. It's a problem of the heart. And Scripture tells us that. It says in uh, Romans chapter 1 that from the beginning, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that we're without excuse. God's existence and His power should be obvious. But they're not because that same chapter says, or that's, yeah, I believe it's the same chapter, says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness because we love our sin. Isn't that the case? All of us were there at some point. Some of us are even there occasionally now. There's something wrong with our hearts, something broken about our relationship with God by nature. Ephesians 2 says that. It says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that talking about, kids? The prince of the power of the air? Satan. Satan. Very good. The spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, it's a heart problem, not an intellect, not an intellect or an evidence problem. Is evidence a bad thing? Not at all. God can and does use good arguments, good evidence, good apologetics in the process of bringing people to Him. He does. But we just need to remember that it's a heart problem first. And that means sometimes you'll get into those evangelism situations where the person won't listen and you just have to walk away. That's really hard to do. I struggle doing that. I tend to take conversations probably far longer than I need to sometimes. But just do remember that Scripture also says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls, the pearls of the the grace of God, the treasure that is salvation in Jesus Christ. Don't let somebody treat those as an unholy thing. And uh, some of you may think about that and say, well, well, wait a minute. I, I talked to that person and I didn't get them to come to church with me. Or I didn't get them to say the sinner's prayer. Or I didn't even get them to, to take a tract. Doesn't that mean I failed? No. No. The work of salvation is God's. Your work is defined in one word, faithfulness. You are responsible to be faithful to the call, to present the gospel as clearly and persuasively as you can, and leave the rest to God. So let that take a little pressure off you. You're not in charge of the results. Just obey God. Make sense? So, two big keys. By the Spirit, and it is a heart problem primarily. Now I want to talk about the approach. Some kind of things to do and things not to do when you share the gospel. Number one, sharing the gospel is not a sales pitch. You're not trying to back somebody into a corner and throw a bunch of facts at them. 
All right? It's a conversation. It's friendly. Be friendly. Be personable. Talk to the person like they're a real person. Um, 1 Peter 3.15. Most of you probably know this one. It says, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have, but with gentleness and respect. You know, that old uh, cliche that says they won't care how much you know unless they know how much you care is true. So, Let me see, where am I? There we go. So sharing the gospel is not a sales pitch, it's a conversation. There we go. Now, who knows what a cliche is? Any of the kids? Any of the adults? (laughs) There are kind of those sayings that we get stuck in our head that are kind of part of a culture that we're part of that may not be understood by people outside of that culture, right? We don't want to use those cliches when we're sharing the gospel. There are a lot of, well, I mean, in any social group, there are going to be words and phrases that only make sense to people within that group. Whether you're into sports or into computers or into something else, even by age, you know, the teenagers are going to be using phrases that I don't get anymore. When you're sharing the gospel, you don't want to use Christianese because it's not going to make sense to people that don't have the same background as we are. For instance, if somebody were to come up to you on the street and say, hey, brother, sister, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Is that a powerful truth? Absolutely, it's a very powerful truth. But to somebody from outside of a Christian perspective, that's not going to sound cool. That's going to sound weird. Blood, dead animals, what are you talking about? Do I need to take out some kind of protective order against you? That's weird. And you know what? There are more and more people in the Bay Area who do not have a Christian perspective, who have no foundation to build on. So sometimes you need to use bible words. That's okay. Make sure you define them. But try to use normal talk, normal, simple communications when you share the gospel. That makes sense? So it's a conversation. Don't use cliches. Talk to a person not the group. Now, what do I mean by that? Some of you may have studied on a group like um, the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Muslims or something like that. And we have a tendency when we get a good amount of knowledge about a group like that, even atheists, to talk to the group rather than the person. Each person has their own set of experiences, their own kind of unique twist on things, So we want to make sure that we listen to that person and figure out where they are so we know how best to talk to them. Particularly something like Catholicism or or, uh, Mormonism. You can have people with those two groups and their beliefs are all over the place. So talk to a person, not a group. And along those same lines, ask a lot of questions. Questions are extremely important to figure out 
more about the person that you're talking to. Jesus asked lots of questions, didn't he? So we want to do the same thing. We want to get as much information from that person so we can really reach them where they're at. Now, how do you start a conversation with a person? Well, we're going to talk more about that later, but one of the best ways, one of the best tools that you can use is gospel tracts. How many of you guys have gospel tracts? Carry them with you. Few people. I would encourage you to. And for those of you who don't know, a gospel tract is a little piece of paper, a little pamphlet, something, something on the front that will grab your attention, basic gospel message inside. They're great, they're cheap, they're a perfect way to start a conversation, and if that person isn't willing to talk, they leave with the gospel in their hands, and God can and does use those in the process of bringing people to himself. And there's adult ones, and there's kid ones, and there's ones about all kinds of different topics. So I would encourage you to get some gospel tracts, and I can show you some of the ones that I prefer after the service if you're interested. A very well-known evangelist of the past, Charles Spurgeon. Anybody know Charles Spurgeon? Yeah, there we go. He said this, when preaching and private talk are not available, you need to have a tract ready. Get good striking tracts or none at all. But a touching gospel tract may be the seed of eternal life. Therefore, do not go out without your tracts. And I never do. And, and he says good striking tracts, that's important too, because I've met some people who, with the best of intentions, write a few Bible verses, you know, and print it out on a piece of printer paper and cut it out with a pair of scissors, and it's kind of, it doesn't look all that good, nice. Not that appearance is everything, but when you have something with a little quality, it shows people that you care, you know, and, and a good striking tract is much more likely to be tucked into a pocket or put into a purse rather than being thrown on the ground or in a garbage can. So keep that in mind. I've actually, on that page on my website, um, the sermon notes and resources, there are a couple of good sources for good biblical tracts, websites that you can go to and buy them. So consider that. Finally, using your personal testimony. Now, a testimony can be a really powerful thing. A testimony is your story about how you came to know God. Just make sure that when you talk about what God did, it's really about God, not about you. Some people will spice up their testimonies, should we say. You guys know what I'm talking about? Look at how horrible I was, and I was a drug dealer and a murderer and all these things, and then with a little help from God, I got better. That's not the story we want to tell. We want to tell about what God did and the power of salvation, and that is the most amazing miracle anybody can ever see. So, tracks and... Got a dead pen. There's a good one. Testimony. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through a basic gospel presentation like I would on the street. And then we're going to take each piece of that and take it apart and talk about each one of them. So frequently when I meet people on the streets, and I'll use Christians as an example because some of you might fit into this category, not the Christian category, but the kind of uh, message I'm talking about. Um, When somebody says they're a Christian, I'll ask them a, a, a leading question. And I'll phrase it like this, if, let's imagine you had a friend come up to you, good friend of yours, he's got a knife sticking out of his back, he's bleeding out, 
He's only got a few minutes to live. And he says to you, I know you know something about God. And I'm about to die. And I'm not sure. I've done lots of bad things. But I'm not sure what to do about those bad things. What should I do? What would you tell them? And usually I'll let them talk. And I'll, you know, two general results. Sometimes, or a lot of the time actually, very early into that conversation, it's clear that they don't really understand what the gospel is. But I'll let them talk. Sometimes, frequently, Christians, they have all the pieces. They just don't know how to put them together. And so after they finish talking, I'll say, now, can I share with you what I would say? And almost all the time, they're going to say yes, because you gave them time to talk. One of those ways to break down barriers. And I'll explain it like this. In a few minutes, you're going to stand before God. And when you do, you're going to have to answer for every wrong thing that you did, every good thing you should have done but didn't, and even for what went through your mind. And we'll be judged by God's law. And Scripture says that we shall not lie. And I've done that. But more, it says all liars have their part in the lake of fire. Scary. It says you shall not steal anything, and I've done that too. And no thief will inherit the kingdom of God. But it's not just what we do, it's what we think. I mean, some people say, well, I haven't done anything really bad, I've never killed anyone. But the Bible says anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life in him. The truth is, every one of us is guilty and deserving of punishment from God. And God is a good judge who must punish sin perfectly. But he is also a good and kind and loving father. And he demonstrated his love, not by ignoring our sin, but by paying for it. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, fully God and fully man, but without sin. He lived the perfect life we should have lived but never could. Then died the death that we deserved, shedding his blood so we wouldn't have to shed ours. And then he proved who he claimed to be when he rose again from the dead on the third day. And now he is like our our lawyer for judgment day, standing before the judgment throne. So if we will do two things, if we will turn from our sins, not perfect behavior, but a change in who and what we follow after, and trust in Jesus alone, then on judgment day, instead of God looking down and seeing our sin, he will see Christ's perfect righteousness instead. Does that make sense? Good. So, once again, let's tear that apart piece by piece. I'm going to break it down into five pieces. The first is actually sometimes the toughest one, moving from the natural to the spiritual. How do you start the conversation? Two, sin and law. We're going to explain the problem that we have with God because of our sin and where that comes from. We're going to talk about judgment and hell, a tough subject, but we need to go through it, talk about God's justice and the punishment we deserve. Then we're going to shift from the bad news to the good news. We're going to talk about the cross and the resurrection, what God did to bring us back into relationship with Him. And finally, repentance and faith, what biblical salvation looks like. So first, making that move from the natural to the spiritual. How to make that spiritual transition. And you know, this in our heads is often the most difficult part, but it's really not as difficult as we make it sometimes because spiritual topics come up all the time in conversation, don't they? 
And we transition subjects in conversations all the time. When you're getting together with your friend for, for coffee or something like that, or your kids are playing and you're talking in the park, you'll shift from, you know, how your day at work was to what's going on with the family to your favorite sports team to what's going on in politics. And you listen for those verbal cues and for those connections between those topics. That's what we need to learn to do with spiritual topics. When somebody says something like, well, it's better than the alternative when they're having a bad day. What's the alternative they're talking about? Yeah, death, that's right. Is it better than the alternative? Well, it kind of depends on what the alternative is and where you're going, isn't it? Or uh, you only live once. A few years ago, they even had t-shirts and hats with those on it. YOLO, you only live once. Well, you sure that that's true? What do you think happens next? What do you think happens when we walk out of this world and into the next one? You need to start listening for those cues. Now, a great way, of course, to transition is the gospel tracts too, which is why I encourage everybody to have them, um, because that can be difficult. But we need to be bold. We need to be willing to bring up those topics, and not in a way that you bang somebody over the head with it, you know, or you try to shoehorn it in where it doesn't belong. Somebody's talking about what they're having for dinner, and you say, you know who else ate dinner? Jesus did. <laughs> Probably not a great transition. But a thing that will help, a thing that I've really been thinking about a lot recently is what I call, big words, kids, listen up, decompartmentalization. Decompartmentalization, I know, big word. Think about it this way. When you have Christian friends Do you talk to them a little differently than you talk to your non-Christian friends? Talk about different things, you know, because sometimes it can be very uncomfortable. We have a compartment for spiritual things and a compartment for uh, um, secular things. We need to put those two together. We need to be the Christian us all the time. Just be very matter of fact, be very be very uh, vulnerable about who you are and what you believe. And that makes those kind of transitions, those kind of talks, starting those kind of talks, much, much easier. But it does take practice and it does take boldness. So, from transition to sin and law. What we know as Christians and what a lot of people don't know is that we, by nature, have a problem with God. A lot of people will say things like, well, we're all children of God, aren't we? No, we're not. We're all creations of God. But John 1 says that to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we are children of God, not by nature, but by adoption. So we need to show people the problem that they have with God. So God in Scripture, talks about his nature. One of my favorite places to go is Exodus 34. Now, this is, um, in that passage, God had given the Ten Commandments to Moses, and Moses asked to see his face, and he said, no, you can't see my face. It's too glorious. It'll kill you. And so he, you guys have heard this story before? So he hides in the cleft of the rock, and God puts his hand over the top of him. And then it's interesting. It said that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, And the Lord declared the name of the Lord. So God's saying, this is what I'm like. You better listen up. And what does he say? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love 
and faithfulness, but who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So we have a God of mercy and a God of, any guesses what this word might be? Yeah, I heard it out there, justice. A God of mercy and a God of justice. What is the one word you guys think that would describe God's character most fully? I think I heard it. It starts with H. Holy. So it means He is other than us in nature and kind. He is creator and we are creation. And it also means that He is perfectly morally pure. That's what Scripture says God is like. What is God, what does Scripture say we are like? How are we doing? Are we holy? Are we perfect? Are we pure? We are not. What do we call the wrong things that we've done in light of God's law? Yes. And you know the, anybody know the connection between that and the picture? What does sin come from, the term? Missing the mark. I heard somebody say it out there. It's an old archery term. It means to miss the mark. And when it comes to God's law... We have all missed the mark, haven't we? And so that's what we want to show to the person that we're talking to. We want to show them that they've missed the mark because most people think that they're pretty good people. You know? And they think that who goes to heaven? Good people, right? Isn't it good people that go to heaven? That's what most people think. But is any of us good enough to meet God's standard? No, we're not. So what we use, or what I use on the street, is what's called the good person test. How many of you know about Ray Comfort and have listened to some of his stuff before? Great stuff. I, learned, I, I first learned to street preach with his ministry. I traveled down to L.A. to train with them back in 2008. That's how I got into street preaching. He has two messages for the adults, but the kids can understand a lot of it too, called Hell's Best Kept Secret and True and False Conversion. You can download them, watch them, listen to them for free on the internet. I highly encourage it. I've listened to both of those messages 50 or 60 times. It'll give you a good foundation for how you should present the law. So we are going to use the law to bring the knowledge of sin. What's a good kind of a summary statement of God's law? Any guesses? Ten commandments, there you go. Now, there's much more to God's law, but the Ten Commandments is, a, as I said, a good summary statement, and most of the principles that we see in there are going to be agreed with even by people who do not have a Christian background. Now, this is important. The law is not a way for us to be right with God. It's not. It's like a mirror. It shows us the problem. Think about it. When you get up in the morning, one of the first things that you're going to do is go to the bathroom and look at yourself in the mirror to see what kind of damage has been done the night before, right? The mirror doesn't solve the problem. You don't look at yourself, oh man, that's nasty. Pull the mirror off the wall and rub it around on your face. The mirror shows you the problem and then you go to the water to wash. The mirror of God's law shows the sinner his problem, so they go to the blood of Jesus Christ to wash. They need to understand the problem, understand the disease, before they're going to desire the cure. Does that make sense? 
So we can go through a couple of them, just like I went through in, the, uh, in my little presentation. Have you ever told a lie? Who here has told a lie before? If you're not raising your hand, you're lying now. <laughs> and then we talk about the seriousness of the lie, that, that it is worthy of, of death and hell. Have you ever stolen anything? Yeah, I've done that too. Now, when you're doing any of these, one of the most important principles that you can use is what I call self-reflection. It's not, you have a problem, you've told a lie, you've stolen something. You've told a lie? Yeah, me too. I've done that. I'm guilty of that. Have you ever stolen anything? Yeah, me too. For the grown-ups. You ever, what Jesus said, look with lust and thus committed adultery? Yeah, me too. And I'm saying this with my wife sitting right back there. I'm, it's, it doesn't have to be comfortable, but it's true. We have all sinned. And when you're standing, not standing in front of somebody, pointing them and saying, you have a problem, but standing next to them and saying, we have a problem, friend, let's look at the solution together. Then people will listen. You're not that self-righteous Christian that they were told to expect. Does that make sense? Really powerful. So we need to go through the law. And there's a lot of examples we could go through. And remember, it's things that we've done and things that we haven't done that we should have done. My pens are dying on me. That's okay. And we need to present God as not only a good and loving Father, but as a judge and remind them that we are... guilty. Some people are hesitant to want to feel the other, make the other person feel guilty, to talk about sin because it's difficult. It is. This takes boldness. But it's important that they have that feeling of guilt. Fear and guilt are not necessarily bad things. They can be used badly. But fear and guilt are are warning signs given to us by God to show us that something is wrong. They're going to feel guilty because they are guilty, just like us. So, good person test. So now we want to talk about something that's a lot less fun, and that is the reality of judgment and hell. A lot of people will say that judgment is unreasonable. Hey, I'm a pretty good person. Some people will, will go here when they're talking about um, the law. They'll say, you should ask a question like, you know, if, if God were to judge you by his standard, would that make you innocent or guilty? Most people are going to say guilty when you use the law. They can look at themselves honestly. Ask them, well, where do you think you'll go? Heaven or hell? What are most people going to say? Heaven. Heaven. Why? Because I'm not that bad. God knows my heart. You guys heard that? God does know your heart. Is that good news? <laughs> no, it's not. That's the problem. A good illustration to use to kind of reinforce that is, um, I, I, it's, I call it the hard drive illustration. So imagine... I could, somebody could uh, hook a hard drive, a computer hard drive, up to my brain. 
and download every secret thought and every action over, say, 48 hours. And then, and once again, I like to put myself on the hot seat. People are thinking about themselves. You can, ref- you can reflect it to yourself. And then imagine, have, knowing that somebody did that, I get a call from Pastor Dave, and he invites me over for church movie night. And so, and he invites all my family and friends, and we come into the sanctuary, and we sit down, and I've got my popcorn and my soda ready to watch the movie. The lights are dimmed, and the title scrolls across the screen, Dan Bodwin's Thought Life. (laughs) Would I be comfortable with that? Would any of you be comfortable with that? Or like me, if if you were in that position, would you be okay with everybody seeing that movie, or would you want to move to Outer Mongolia, where no one who knows you would ever see you again? People need to realize that that's what's scrolling in front of God's eyes every moment of every day. So we laugh, but it's an uncomfortable laugh because we know what it would be like in that situation. Once again, that's what we want the people that we're talking to to see. And when we think about it that way, then hell and judgment makes sense. Another good analogy, I wasn't planning to share this, but I think it's a good one. Um, if I were to, I've got my daughter sitting in the, in the congregation as well. If I were to lie to my daughter, would that be a bad thing? Yeah. Could she do anything to punish me? Not really, not really. But my wife's also in the congregation, so if I lie to her, or she finds out I lied to my daughter, I'm going to be in trouble. If I go to work and I lie to my boss... Am I going to get punished for that? Yeah, I'm going to lose my job. If I were to go to court and lie to the judge, what's going to happen? Held in contempt of court, I could go to jail. Same sin, what's the difference? Because the punishments are gradually increasing. It's the authority of the person against whom the crime is committed, right? All of our sins are ultimately against who? God. It's vertical primarily. So even the smallest of sins is infinitely sinful against an infinitely holy and perfect God. So every one of us really does deserve judgment and hell. It's a scary thought. And what does Scripture say about hell? I think we need to debunk some false ideas about it. A lot of people you talk to will think, well, it's just a place where I can do any sin that I want to. I've had people tell me, oh, yeah, well, I want to go to hell. All my friends are there. We'll be partying with the devil. People do treat it lightly like that. First of all, does the devil actually rule in hell? No, he doesn't. It's a place for his punishment. He doesn't have control there. Revelations 14.10. This is scary, but we need to wrap our brains around this. It's talking about those who receive the mark of the beast. And it says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Another important thing to remember, we sometimes talk about hell as separation from God. It's not. It's separation from His goodness and mercy and love and being under the weight of His anger and wrath. And that should frighten us. 
And it should give us a sense of urgency to share the gospel with the people around us. We all know people who are going there. That's why I deserve to go. I don't want anybody else to go there. So do not avoid making the person that you're talking to fearful. But do make sure that you tell them that it's not all bad news, but that there is real hope. And that's where we want to go on to now. Because God is a judge, but not only a just judge, but a loving Father. And God demonstrated His love, once again, not by ignoring our sins, which would make Him unjust, but by paying for it through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, not just a man, but the God-man. Fully man and fully God at the same time. And that is important because sin came into the world through man, therefore it must be paid by man. But it also must be paid by God because it took a sacrifice of infinite value to pay the price for our infinite sin. And only God himself is of infinite value, isn't he? So Jesus Christ came, and he lived the perfect life that we should have lived, never sinning once, and then willingly went to a cross. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't done against his will. There were other times. You kids know that there were other times that they tried to kill Jesus. They tried to stone him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. What did he do? He just walked away. They couldn't hold Jesus if he didn't want to be held. He was the creator of the universe. It wasn't his time. So he simply walked away. But then he let himself be arrested. He let himself be beaten. He let himself be crucified. I love the way Isaiah 53 puts it. And Isaiah 53 is a good passage to use because it's a passage that was written 700 years before Jesus Christ was born and perfectly describes what would happen to him. And we, it was even in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have complete copies. We know that it was passed down accurately. That's a powerful thing. It says, It pleased the Father to crush his Son, that all of our iniquities were laid on him, And by his stripes, by his suffering, we were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But of course, Jesus didn't just die. What happened three days later, guys? That's right, he rose again. Fulfilling the prophecy he had given. Now, it's one thing to die for a religious cause. Have a lot of people done that? Oh, yeah, we've got some crazy ones that have done that within our lifetimes. I mean, I think of, you know, David Koresh or Jim Jones or people like that. It's one thing to claim to speak for God. But he said, they're going to arrest me and kill me and bury me, and I will raise myself again from the dead. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. And he did exactly that. He proved his power over sin and death. He proved who he claimed to be. 
couple of points I want to touch on her on here. So Jesus proved his claim, um, and Jesus was the perfect payment for sin. What's the word that Jesus used? Anybody knows? From the cross, when he said, "Whoops, it, it is finished." That's actually not three words. That's one word. What's that word? To telestai. That's right. And what's interesting is that word has actually been found on bills of sale from that time period showing that they've been perfectly paid off. So there is a legal aspect to the cross. There was a debt that was owed, a legal demand, and that legal demand was satisfied. Colossians 2 says God satisfied the legal demands of the law by nailing it to the cross. Oh man, there's so much I could go through. I just love this stuff. But we are running low on time. Um, Which is why I just want to encourage you guys again, please do download the outline. It's got a tremendous amount of more information. It's got a lot of additional Bible verses and stuff like that. That will help you guys. But since we're running down, I'm going to go ahead and finish up and talk about the last key, which is repentance and faith and what biblical salvation looks like. Now, there are some things that I would not recommend that we do when we're telling somebody or encouraging somebody to to trust in Christ. And I'm going to probably step on a few toes here. I hope not, but I think it's important to do. The sinner's prayer. Do we want to be just trying to get somebody to repeat a prayer? No. Now, a simple prayer is all that's necessary for somebody to come to right relationship with God if God is working in their heart. There's nothing wrong with that. I know people that have been saved by saying the sinner's prayer. I just want to make sure that we understand that it's not a Harry Potter spell. You don't repeat the words and poof, everything is perfect. That's not the way it works. God needs to be working in that person's heart in order for it to have any effect. Asking Jesus into your heart too. I know what people mean when they say it, but frequently that phrase is given out without any respect to sin and repentance. And those things are vital. Without, without the understanding of sin and without true repentance, somebody cannot come to true faith. I would prefer that we stick with biblical terminology. Repentance and faith. Or I'll use the words simpler. Turn. Turn from sin. That doesn't mean perfect behavior. None of us has perfect behavior. I like the way one of my former pastors put it. He says it's a change in allegiance. The person you're connected to, the person that you're choosing to follow. And by nature, we follow self and sin. We need to, and the word repent is actually a pretty cool word. It's an old military term. You're going one direction, you do an about face, and you start going the other way. We want to turn from self and sin. We want to fix our eyes on who? That's right, Jesus and trust in Him alone, who He is and what He did. And then when that happens, when we come to true faith, then 
what happens? It's another Christian cliche, but what's the phrase? We get what? Born again. And this is a powerful thing. I like the way Ezekiel 36 describes it, which is interesting because it's Old Testament, but it still perfectly you know, exemplifies what this means. He said, uh, and this was God talking to the nation of Israel, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove that heart that is made of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. So God changes our hearts so we want to follow him. If you Now I've taken away the ask Jesus into your heart in the sinner's prayer. So what do I put in its place? Psalm 51. For those of you who aren't aware, that is the, uh, the psalm written by King David after the incident with Bathsheba. I won't go into the details of that with kids in here, but you guys know the story. And when he was called to account by God, this is what he wrote. And we don't have time to read it this morning, but go home and read it today. Psalm 51. It perfectly represents what a repentant heart looks like. So I'll read that to people and then say, if this is what is in your heart, if this is the way you are feeling, then I encourage you to call out to God for salvation. And if the Holy Spirit is working on them, they won't need help saying a prayer. So I let them pray, and then I pray for them and repeat all the basics of the Gospels back in the prayer I pray for them to make sure that they understand the details. So God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. Now as we close, I'm not going to assume that everybody in here is a believer in Christ. So I want to ask you guys, when you look at the things that we talked about today, when you look at your own sin, you look at the reality of your guilt and the reality of hell and what Jesus did. I mean, that's amazing to think about. I can't, I can't help but put these things in here. In Hebrews chapter 1, it describes Jesus this way. It said He is the radiance of God's glory the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That God, Philippians 2 says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held to, but emptied himself. He humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. God died so that you could live. So when we talk about repentance and faith, turning and trusting in Christ, have you done that? Have you recognized your own sin? Have you turned from that sin? Have you put your faith in the Savior? 150,000 people, on average, die every day. A lot of people in times and in circumstances that they didn't expect. I had a friend of mine, Mike, I talked to. Uh, we used to have a Saturday morning prayer meeting. And uh, talked to him once about the ministry. 
um, at his home group. Sunday morning we get together. He's excited about hearing more. We're fellowshipping and stuff like that. And that night his wife went to church for a class. Came home. He was sitting up in bed. Gone. Not a terribly old guy. Very good health. Just like that. None of us has promised a tomorrow. So my friends, please, while you have time, while God has been patient with you, while he has continued to let you breathe, breathe his air and walk his earth and enjoy all the good things that he's given, and scripture says every good and perfect thing comes from God. While he has been patient with you, Turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. Turn to Jesus Christ and live. And if you have already done that, praise God, go tell somebody else. Because there are millions in this Bay Area who don't know Jesus and who are headed for hell and their souls matter too. So go tell somebody. And if you have any questions, if there's any way that I can encourage you to share your faith or explain the gospel more fully to you, please come and talk to me afterwards. I'll spend as much time as you need. Thank you so much.